All right, good morning. My name is Chuck Leemaster. I'm with Team Faith. It's my privilege to be your chaplain on this GNCC series, and welcome to Snowshoe. Got a bright and beautiful morning, a great day for a race. So um, we're going to go ahead and do chapel in the snowshoe fashion right here in the middle of the courtyard. So uh, as always, I'd just like to, like to prepare our hearts, and I'm going to say a word of prayer, and we'll get going. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Just thanks for the beautiful Snowshoe Mountain. What a great place to have a race. And we, we love racing because you put it in our hearts. And uh, we just we want to give back to you and give you the first part of our day for this weekend. So uh, would you be with us this morning and speak to our hearts and just speak through me and use me in whatever way you want to. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first question this morning is, how far have you ever jumped your dirt bike? All right, I know it's a silly question, but uh, you know we're woods, we're woods racers, most of us, but some of you guys are pretty good at, uh, at motocross. And I've done some motocross, did a couple seasons of motocross, and those, those big jumps out there, you know, you rev the bike up and you launch it and you, you fly for a while, and it's really cool when you do it right. It's a lot of fun when you do it right. But you know, I was born in 1973, which unfortunately gives you a, a hint of how old I am, but um, at, when I was born in 73, that was the height of the evil Knievel craze. Evil Knievel was the man when I was born. We had that little wind-up uh, thing, and you hit the button, and off he launches, and those things are worth gold on eBay today. But Evil Knievel was the man, and his, his rise to fame, really, he was, a, he was a stunt man for a little while, but his real claim to fame, what really made him famous, was when he went to Caesar's Palace, and he tried to jump the fountain. And actually, the, the story behind that is that he kind of conned, uh, he pulled a con on Caesar's Palace and pretended to be somebody with, uh, with ABC Broadcasting and kind of got the deal lined up. And then he went to ABC and said, hey, I got this jump. You guys ought to film it. And so ABC, you know, it, just, it all kind of came together. He conned his way into it. He went there to Caesar's Palace to jump the fountain, and he didn't make it. Because we've all seen the YouTube videos, we've all seen what happened. He comes up short, and his, his Triumph Bonneville had like four inches of suspension, and he, and he bounced off the deck, the safety decking on the ramp, and he just launched through the air all over again. And if he had completed that jump, it would have been 141 feet long. That would have been like a world record for the longest jump on a motorcycle. But he didn't complete it, and he tumbled and rolled for 165 feet, farther than he was in the air. And he broke like so many bones. He was in a coma for 29 days after that. And after that, you would think he'd be done, but no, that's actually what rose him to prominence in the daredevil world. He became known as Evil Knievel. And so you fast forward, he was 29 years old when he did that uh, mishap at Caesar's Palace. You fast forward to when he was 35 years old. He said, hey, I'm going to jump the Grand Canyon. And the government wouldn't give him permission to jump the Grand Canyon because the government owns that property. And so he was on a commercial flight, and he was flying over the Snake River Canyon. And he looked down, and he said, well, if I can't jump the Grand Canyon, I'll do the Snake River Canyon. And he found a piece of property that he could lease for three years, and he leased property on both sides of the canyon. And he said, I'm going to jump this three-quarter mile gap. I'm going to do it on a motorcycle. And he started looking at it, he built this huge, huge mound of dirt that was going to be his takeoff ramp, and he realized you can't do it on a motorcycle, so what he did was he hired a former NASA engineer to build him a rocket ship, basically. It was a rocket ship with two wheels, had this rail system 108 feet tall on top of this big mound of dirt, and it was a steam-powered rocket. And when he went to register the vehicle with the state of Idaho, they registered it as a motorcycle, or as an uh, airplane instead of a motorcycle. 
And so even if he cleared that gap and landed it, it wouldn't have set the world record for a jump on a motorcycle. But we know that story too, because his chute deployed right on takeoff, and he got up to the very height of his, uh, of his jump, and that chute was fully deployed, and the winds drifted him back over to the same side of the canyon that he jumped from, and he landed down by the river, and the actual distance of the jump, they didn't even bother to measure because he didn't go anywhere. So that was a no-go. But then you fast forward just a few years later, 1975, actually one year later, he finally set a world record at Kings Island. He went and he jumped 19 buses, 19 Greyhound buses side to side, 133 feet, 1975, world record. He barely made the landing, but he held on and it counted. And so everything was good in the world of, of uh, extreme sports with long-distance dirt bike jumps. That record stood for about two decades until Bubba Blackwell broke the record in uh, 1999, and he jumped 20 buses. All right, but 133 feet is the record for a long-distance jump. And then in 1994, something phenomenal happened. Crusty demons of dirt. Y'all remember that video? Crusty Demons of Dirt. This is what started the whole freestyle craze, the whole freestyle mania. I mean, legends were born out of Crusty Demons of Dirt. Mike Metzger, you know, the godfather of freestyle motocross. And uh, along comes Travis Pastrana in the late 90s and still at, at the height of that sport today. But in 1994, on Crusty Demons of Dirt, there was a guy named Seth Enslow. And if you've seen the video, this is what stands out in that video to me the most. I mean, this guy was nuts. He took his YZ250, six gear, tapped, and launched it off of the sand dune, and he flew for over 200 feet. But he wasn't doing it for a world record. He was just doing it because he was nuts. And he, he flew for over 200 feet, and when he landed on the other dune, he landed where he wanted to land, but the dune was too shallow. And his YZ suspension compressed, and it spit him off, and he went tumbling through the sand. And the next scene on, on the video, it cuts to him with his helmet off, and he's laying on the ground, and he's just saying, Ugh making that noise, and he's got blood coming out of his nose, and he's a mess, but he didn't want to go to the hospital. But over 200 feet, was, he flew, and it started the whole freestyle mania, and we didn't give much consideration to what's the longest distance you can jump on a dirt bike until 99 when Blackwell jumped 20 buses. And then here recently, it's kind of come to the front of our minds of what's the farthest you can jump a dirt bike. And on, uh, oh, what was it, New Year's Eve 2007, Robbie Madison jumped uh, at, at Rio Grande, um, where was it, the Rio Grande Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. He jumped over a football field, the distance of a football field on New Year's Eve 2007. I remember that, just thinking that is incredible that he was able to go that far. Two, 322 feet is what he actually went. What most of us don't know is that three months later, he went to his home in Melbourne, Australia, and he jumped 346 feet and set a new world record. And then just, uh, just a year and a half ago, New Year's Eve 2011, as we ushered in 2012, Levi Lavalley on a snowmobile, side-by-side side next to Robbie Madison on a CR500. They go side-by-side side down this long takeoff ramp, and then they launch through the air, and Robbie Madison sets a new world record at 378 feet and 9 inches. And actually, in practice, he had gone 392 feet, but it wasn't measured and it wasn't verified. So the world record for the longest jump on a dirt bike is 378 feet and 9 inches. Now, Levi Lavalley on a snowmobile went 412 feet. But that 400-foot marker has not been broken yet by anybody on a dirt bike. And here we are at Snowshoe, 4,700 feet high when you go to the top of the mountain. I think we have an advantage. If we've got any brave souls, I think we could set a new world record today. All right, so what we do is we go to the top of the mountain, we got gravity on our side, we'll set up a huge ramp, and let's just go ahead and launch and forget the 400-foot mark. Let's go for Nashville, Tennessee, 
533 miles. All right, now I see, I see the looks on the faces. Like, yeah, that's kind of fun. I don't know where you're going with that. <laughs> that's kind of stupid. You told this long, drawn-out story, got my attention with Evil Knievel and some cool things, and now 533 miles? You're kind of stupid, kind of crazy. I heard a pastor give a similar analogy not too long ago, except he was talking about long jumping, like run and jump, and if you don't make it, you get sand in your shoe. And I thought, well, that's you know, kind of an interesting story. And then he wanted us to jump from South Carolina to Dallas, Texas. And I was like, dude, you're kind of, I'm insulted. <laughs> you tell me this long, drawn-out story, and then you make a, you're one of those preachers that can't preach. You just tell interesting stories, and then when you want to make your point, you connect the dots, and it's really thin and vague. But you know what? Evil Knievel, when he didn't make a jump, he really got hurt. 1974, Wembley, England. He was supposed to jump 14 buses over there. He got drunk the night before. He got wasted. And so the next morning, he's with Frank Gifford, the ABC sports commentator. And he goes out and he looks at the jump. He sees the buses all lined up. He sees the takeoff ramp. He sees the landing ramp. And he sees the run-up. And he says to Gifford, he says, I can't do it. Frank says, what do you mean you can't do it? He says, there's not enough run-up. I can't get enough speed. And Gifford says, well, don't do it. And Evil says, i got to do it. He says, well, take out one of the buses. Evil says, I can't. 70,000 people are here. I've got to do it. He goes back to his room and he passes out. They come and wake him up and say, hey, what are we going to do here? And Evil says, don't worry about it. I'll find the speed. He goes out there and crashes his ever-loving brains out. <laughs> he breaks his hell pelvis. He breaks two vertebrae in his back. Um, he's got a concussion in his head. He's got a bone sticking out of his finger. And he gets up and he gets people to support him up and hold his weight. And he gets the microphone. He says, folks, that's it. You've seen Evil Knievel's last jump ever. I'm retiring. That's it. And then they cart him off to the hospital. So if he doesn't make the jump, if you don't make the jump on a dirt bike, it's, it's disastrous. But you know what? Evil Knievel, two days later, he's calling ABC Sports and saying, you can't air that. I didn't mean it. I'm not really retiring. And they said, well, we're going to air it anyway because that's good TV. And uh, you're just going to have to come out of retirement if you want to do another jump. Five months later, he comes out of retirement and sets the record over at Kings Island that stood for over two decades. So anyway, if you don't make the jump, there's consequences. But we want to jump 533 miles. And you're wondering, okay, you reel me back in with another cool story, but what is this stupid talk about 533 miles? Well, here's where I'm going with that. Here's the connection to that. That's what most of us are trying to do when it comes to getting to heaven. We're trying to jump a gap that cannot be jumped. You know, I've asked a few people in my life, if you died tonight, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? And you know what most people say? what a lot of people even within the range of my voice today would say? I hope so. I think so. I said, well, what do you mean by that? So, well, I've always been a good person. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've made a few mistakes, but I think that when I get to heaven that God's going to look at me and say, hey, you tried really hard and, and you're good enough. You can come into heaven. I say, really? That's what you want to stake your eternity on? Don't you want to know for sure that if you died tonight you would go to heaven? And that's where we're at today. How good is good enough? That's our question. How good is good enough? Well, here's the thing. In the Bible, there's this guy named David. He's like the best guy. He's, he's the goodest guy that's ever lived, okay? And I know that goodest isn't a word, but it's best. He's the best guy that's ever lived, and I know that because the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He's the only guy that the Bible ever refers that, God, that David is a man after God's own heart. So he's the goodest guy that's in the Bible, okay? That's not Jesus who was perfect. All right, so the goodest guy in the Bible, here's what he says, Psalm 14, verse 2. says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if there is even one with real understanding, but no. All have turned from God. All have become corrupt. No one does good. Not even one. No one does good. Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 3. He says that, um, he says, no one's good. All have sinned. All fall short of God's standard. 
Well, what in the world? What is God's standard? How good is good enough? What is God's standard? To find that, we only need to look at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the flowers and the trees and the birds and the animals. Every day after creation, He says, it is good. Everything's good. And then He creates man. He creates Adam and Eve, and He puts them in this perfect garden, the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. The trees, the flowers, everything is perfect. Everything is good. They're in community with God. They're in relationship with God. Everything is good, and God gives them one rule. He says, don't eat that fruit from that tree. One rule. Just one thing. And God desired love to be loved and to love in return. And you can't love without free will. So he gave him one thing. Just don't eat, that one. don't eat the apple. We don't know if it was an apple, but let's go with apple. Don't eat the apple. What did Adam and Eve do? They ate the apple. And that one act, that one thing, God said, you know what? You've come short of my standard. My standard is perfection. This was the only rule that you had to keep. One sin... And you're cast out of the Garden of Eden. You're cast out of this perfect garden. Matter of fact, because of that one sin, you're going to die. Because of that one sin, there's going to be weeds, thorns, thistles, pain and childbearing. That one sin ended all of that perfection. That one sin said that you can't come before a perfect and holy God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5.12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone have sinned. You and I have sinned, and that's just this morning, more than once, I'm sure, because I'm human, and I sin all the time. I come short of God's perfect standard. Adam and Eve, it only took one sin. One sin. You and I have way more than one sin, so what do we do about it? If good isn't good enough, what, what do we do about it? Well, I ask that question. If you die tonight, do you know for sure that you go to heaven? Yeah, I'm a good person. Well, here's how that looks. You're a good person. Awesome. We'll count that as 133 feet. Evil Knievel, 1974, 133 feet. Oh, yeah, but you know what? I'm a good person. Not only am I a good person, I go to church. I even go to Sunday school sometimes. Awesome. 200 feet. Yeah, and I give my money to the poor, and I've got, I'm hooked up with Compassion Coalition, and I do this Red Cross thing and Habitat for Humanity. Wow, you're really doing awesome. 390 feet. And I've been around the world, and I've preached more messages than Billy Graham. Finally, somebody's broke the 400-foot mark. That's awesome. But the standard's 533 miles. Do you see how that works? Good isn't good enough. So if good isn't good enough, who in the world can be saved? Well, those are the two questions we're looking at today. And those are the two questions that were posed to Jesus in Luke chapter 18. Actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story. And in Luke chapter 18, it tells the story of there's a, a religious leader one time asked Jesus this question. He said, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? How do I know for sure that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, is what this guy's asking. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. In other words, I see you buttering me up here. I see that you've got an agenda. And to put that in context, you've got to understand that Jesus, when you think of Jesus and you think of this long-haired, peace pacifist hippie, this might make you reconsider because Jesus indeed was friend of sinners. Jesus indeed had prostitutes come up to him and, and anoint his feet with oil and, and wipe, you know, pour tears all over his feet and wipe his, his feet with their hair. Jesus was a friend of prostitutes. He was a friend of tax collectors, which were like the worst of the worst sinners ever. So indeed, that was Jesus. But when it came to the religious institution, Jesus had some sharp and condemning and confrontational words for the religious institution. And so if you, if you turn your Bibles over just a couple of pages and you go back to Luke chapter 11, 
you'll see this situation where Jesus was invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house. And when he got to this guy's house and they're getting ready to have dinner, Jesus didn't wash his hands in the ceremonial fashion that all the religious leaders said, hey, you've got to wash your hands this way in order to be pure, in order to be holy. And so the, the, the host, the Pharisees, whose house it was, he said, hey, Jesus, why didn't you wash your hands this way? And Jesus says to him, uh, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are still filthy, full of greed and wickedness, fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? And he goes on and he rips him a new one, talking about how all your good deeds, how all your good works, they make you look so good on the outside. On the inside, you're just as filthy as the next guy. And he greatly offends them. And this is a Pharisee, like the top of the religious leader ladder, I guess you'd say. And so there's another leader there who's not a Pharisee. He's just known as a religious leader. He says, hey, teacher, said an expert in religious law. He says, you've insulted us too in what you just said. And Jesus says, yeah. Now that you want to get yourself into the fray, let me talk about you. You crush people beneath your impossible religious demands. You are just as bad. You guys are murderers. And he's calling these religious people fools and murderers. The Bible goes on, after Jesus finished speaking, the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were furious. From that time on, they grilled him with many hostile questions, trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. And so Jesus is at war with the religious institution when he's on this earth. A friend of sinners at war with the religious institution, which is kind of interesting. So we'll continue looking at the story. A religious leader comes up to him, good teacher. Oh really, you're calling me good. Well, only God's good, but what's your question? Well, how do I know for sure that when I die, I'll go to heaven? Okay, well, here's the, here's the question. I see your question, and here's the answer. Um, you know the rules. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. Honor your father and mother. You know the deal, the, ten, the big ten ones, you know? Those things that God passed down to Moses 1,500 years ago. Do those things. That's, that's the way to inherit eternal life. Matter of fact, Jesus was referring to a time when God did give Moses the ten commandments. When God gave Moses those big ten... He gave them 603 other commandments as well. There were 613 rules in the Old Testament that people needed to follow. If they wanted to have a relationship with a holy and perfect God, here's the roadmap. And so at this time on earth, all these guys have gotten together, the religious institutions gotten together and said, okay, 613 rules and we're going to insulate those with a whole bunch of other rules. And Jesus is saying, you've washed the outside of the cup, but you've totally missed the point. Your hearts are still wicked and filthy, and you're still full of greed and envy, and you're murderers, and you're foolish. And so Jesus tells this religious leader, all right, well, just keep the Big Ten. You know the rules. If that's what you're driving at, you want to inherit eternal life, keep the rules. Be a good person. And so the guy says, good. I've obeyed all these commandments since I was a child. He says, good. Then good is good enough, right? That's what he's driving at. Is good good enough? And Jesus says, well, there's still one thing that you lack. Jesus said, sell all that you have and give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. But when the man heard this, he became sad because he was very rich. Jesus watched him go, and then he said to his disciples, how hard it is for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, good isn't good enough. All that physical evidence that you think that you have, all those riches that you have. You see, the religious teaching of that day is very similar to the teaching today. If you have money, then you're blessed by God. If you're blessed by God, then you must be right with God. We have teachers today that go on TV, if you'll just, if you'll just tithe, if you'll just obey the, all these rules that God gives you, then God's going to bless you, and you can have an expensive suit and $4,000 loafers like me. 
And that's what was going on 2,000 years ago. The teaching was if you're rich, you're blessed by God. So if you're blessed by God, you're in good standing. And here comes a religious leader, and he seems to have a hint of sincerity in his question. He says, how good is good enough? And Jesus says, it's not. Sell everything, give up everything that you're depending on, everything that you think that makes you good enough, give it up, and then come and follow me. And the man went away sad. And Jesus says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. And in my lifetime, I've heard that explained that in, in Jerusalem, there was a well that went around Jerusalem. And in that well, there was the main gate that uh, the caravans and the camels could go through. And next to that main gate, there was a little gate that a person could go through. And if a camel got down on his knees, as in a penitent stance, as in, you know, asking on his knees before God, if a camel got on his knees, he could wiggle his way through that narrow gate. But there's no historical evidence that that ever existed. There's no archaeological evidence. There's no manuscript evidence. There's no thought that that ever actually existed. It seems like it's folklore because if you look at ancient times and a wall around a city, that was for defensive fortification. The more, wall, the more doors you have in that wall, the more you have to fortify, the more you have to defend. didn't make any sense. What Jesus was driving at, if you look at this in context, he was driving at it's impossible. So then who can be saved? And that was the question that was posed to Jesus. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved exactly? Who can be saved? He, and Jesus replied, he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that's his point. Your way is not going to cut it. You're never going to be good enough. So our question today is, how good is good enough? It isn't. You've got to give up what you're depending on. Matter of fact, you just have to understand, you can't do it. To get into the kingdom of God, you can't do it. So then who in the world can be saved? Everyone. Every single person. Because it's not about what you can do. It's about what God can do. And it's about what God has already done through his son, Jesus. Jesus did tell this guy how to inherit eternal life. He said, give up everything that you're depending on and then come and follow me. Man, that seems to be a recurring theme through the Gospels. Jesus said that to so many people. Matthew, the tax collector, the worst of the worst, he says, hey, Matthew, give up everything that you're depending on and then come and follow me. And Matthew gave up everything that he was depending on and he came and followed Jesus and became one of Jesus' disciples, became the guy that wrote the first book of the New Testament. Jesus goes to a guy named Peter. He says, Peter, give up everything that you're depending on and then come and follow me and I'll make you fisher of men. Peter, the professional fisherman, gave up everything he was depending on and came and followed Jesus and became the rock that the church was built on. And Jesus tells this guy, give up everything that you're depending on and follow me. You know, it's interesting that Jesus said, why do you call me good because only God is good? The interesting thing is, is that Jesus was God. Jesus was God come down to earth. He was the perfect Savior for us. Jesus was God. He lived a perfect life as the only, only person that ever walked this earth. Fully God, fully human, lived a perfect life, and we killed him. Mankind, we killed him. We put him on a cross. We put him to death. And Luke records later on in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, says that when Jesus was on the cross and he was about to die like it was about to all be done, the world went dark. By this time it was noon, Jesus is on the cross. By this time it was noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the thick veil hanging in the temple was torn apart. And then Jesus shouted, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with those words, he breathed his last. During those three hours of darkness, complete darkness, the sin of the world was placed on Jesus. My sin and your sin was placed on Jesus. 
And Jesus died. And when he died, the veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies that only the holiest person could ever go into, that veil was ripped in half to signify that we now have access through Jesus to God. And Jesus, when he died, we know that he was the perfect sacrifice because on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Jesus rose. We celebrate this every Easter that Jesus is alive and indeed he's proved that he's conquered the grave. And by placing our trust in Jesus, that's our access to eternal life and that's our access to an abundant life that Jesus talked about. So many times, Jesus said over and over, he who believes in me will have eternal life. And that's what, how it happened was that Jesus died in our place. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, His Son. So how do you jump 533 miles? You can't. But Jesus already did it. Paul writes in 3.20, Nobody can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what the law commands. The more we know about God's law, the clearer it becomes that we aren't obeying it. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed His blood, sacrificing His life for us. Let me say one final thing before we close today. There is nobody that's outside of the scope of God's love. One sin or a million sins. It didn't matter for Adam and Eve. They had one sin, and it separated them from God's love. But God's love was so great that he restored us through his son Jesus. One sin or a million sins, it doesn't matter. No one's outside of the scope of God's love. Everybody knows, I started this, uh, this message today with talking about evil Knievel, and everybody knows that evil Knievel was, lived a pretty hard life. And I had a chance to meet Evil Knievel and back in 2007. It was March 2007. I was down in Daytona for Bike Week. I was working for Yamaha at the time. And I was at, uh, at Bike Week. We had our display set up on Vendor Row. And Evil Knievel made an appointment to meet with some of the executives at Yamaha. So he came into Bike Week, and he was the only guy probably in the history of Bike Week that's ever been allowed to ride his Harley down through Vendor Row. It's pedestrian traffic only. He's the, and so he rode his Harley right up to Yamaha. We weren't offended. Hey, it's Evil Knievel. <laughs> Come on in. And he meets with the executives, and I guess that the conversation went that he wanted Yamaha to sponsor him for one, one huge jump. But after they heard his story, they said he wants us to sponsor him for one final jump. I don't even remember what he wanted to jump, but he want, whatever it was, it was impossible. And he, basically, he, was, he was wanting us to sign his death warrant. Like, he wanted to die is what we took out of it. That he was willing to just, he just wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. And Yamaha said, no way, we aren't, we aren't signing on to that. But they politely said, hey, we'll be in touch with you. And so after his meeting, he was standing around talking to some of us common folk. And I was like, this is so cool. I get to meet my childhood hero. It's Evil Knievel. <laughs> I got to meet Evil Knievel and stand around t chit chatting with him, talking for a little bit. And uh, he said, All right, I'll see you all later. Thing is, he was 68 years old when I met him, and he looked 108. I mean, he'd lived a hard life, and it was evidenced in, in the way that he walked. And, and 433 bones broken. I think that that's still a world record for one person. Um, he, so he could barely walk. He'd already had a liver transplant because of his alcoholism. And uh, it looked like he was on his last leg. He said, all right, I'll see you later. He gets on his Harley and remembers pedestrian traffic only. So nobody's really expecting that there's going to be a motorcycle riding through on Vendor Row. He gets on his Harley. He's taken off. And a little boy, little kid, walks out in front of him. And Evil Knievel, of all people, the decrepit 68-year-old that he was, he grabbed too much front brake. Bam. Laid his Harley down in front of everybody. He wasn't hurt, but his pride was hurt. And he jumped up cussing and screaming. Cussed that little boy out, f bombs and everything. Just cussed him out, and I just, I just, I, I was shocked. I was like, man, that's my childhood hero. He's a complete butthole, and I was so disappointed in that. And I just realized, man, this guy, he's just lived a long 
tough life. He's so far from God, but you know what? Nobody's so far from God. As, as we look back through the lens of history, that was a low point in Evil Knievel's life. I do believe that he wanted to die on a Yamaha or a Honda or anybody that would sponsor him. But you know what? Just a few weeks later, Evil Knievel surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And he went on national television in April of 2007. He went on a program called The Hour of Power. And he professed publicly his faith in Jesus Christ, and he was baptized in front of a national uh, television audience. And in November of 2007, he died. And then that year is when Robbie Madison set a new world record by jumping 322 feet, and he dedicated it to Evil Knievel. But I do believe in my heart that when I go to heaven, I'll see Evil Knievel. Because it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or who you are or how bad you think you are, you are never beyond God's saving grace. And that's what I'm driving at today. You can't jump far enough to get to heaven. But Jesus did it. And that's our life. That's our, that's our eternity. It's through Jesus Christ. I've never done this at a GNCC before, but I'm going to ask everybody to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm not going to have you raise your hand. I'm not going to have anybody stand up. But I want you to understand that, man, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you want to know how to do it, then this is a prayer. I'm going to pray out loud. You can just pray in your spirit something along the lines of, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I can't come before you as a sinner because your standard is perfect and I'm not perfect. I'll never be good enough, and I'll never measure up. But I do believe that Jesus died for my sins, and so I ask Jesus to come into my life and wash me clean, take away my sin. Today I'm placing my faith in Jesus. Help me to live for you in the precious name of Jesus Christ who died for me. Amen. Y'all can look up. If you prayed that prayer in your heart, there are angels in heaven rejoicing. And I'd love to rejoice with you. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if you just come and tell me about it, I'll be here taking down the speakers. I'll be back at my rig out here around the corner. I've got a Bible to give you. Man, this is the whole reason that I come to these races. Because I suck on a motorcycle. But I love you guys. I want you to know that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Thank you so much and have a great race. I will see you in September at Unadilla.